And it's your boy Roshan Gomez. You are listening to the Rumor Roy podcast. Special guest in the house, Mr. Lao Yao Hua. Hello, everyone. <laughs> Hello, Roshan. How are you doing? I am good. I'm good. Uh, you took a wrong turn and ended up in Kapong. Yeah, which was embarrassing <laughs> because I should know Sungai Bulo quite well. My nanny, my babysitter, right. used to live here oh, wow. for many years. Uh, of course, not when she was taking care of me, mm. uh, but you know, I've. Uh, well, Oh, some some years ago, she moved over here, yeah. like in your neighborhood, yeah. and I thought I knew the place so well. <laughs> and still, I took a wrong turn. Okay, I blame you on the traffic, but or whatever. Maybe, maybe I mean you're so into like uh, uh, the environment, the, you know, uh, conservation. Maybe you were just like you you were automatically going towards frim for some reason. Oh, <laughs> maybe you just naturally you're... oriented towards nature. <laughs> okay, I'll take the excuse. Sounds good. Sounds good. I'll take the excuse. I didn't come up with it, but. <laughs> All right, I'll take it. Yeah. I mean, I'm really honored to have you here and I'm really excited to have you here. Um, I think one of the reasons I started this podcast was to talk to people like you because otherwise I wouldn't have a reason. You know, it would be weird if I just like suddenly hit you up on like Twitter and like, hey man, how, you know, what's up? Let's have a talk. You know, it's a bit odd. Yeah, selling insurance maybe. Yeah, yeah. You think I'm like an MLM guy or something. Mm -hmm. But, you know, with the podcast, I can just strike up these conversations and I've kind of met like really interesting people. But, yeah, like last week I was telling you, I was talking to a high school friend who I hadn't caught up with and he had taken this like amazing journey and he was studying snails in Australia and uh, just catching up with him through the podcast and listening about his story. I'm particularly interested in people who take the road less traveled mm. and uh, because I'm someone who did not do that, I took a very conventional road, conventional, a very safe journey. So I'm interested in people who who took another route, who are brave enough to do that, their motivations and what they've learned, right? Yeah, I, I wouldn't say doing a podcast out of your working, working hours, <laughs> right, would be a conventional pathway. Yeah. yeah, I wouldn't say that. So Yeah, that's true as well. That's true. Actually, Junkin mentioned the same thing. Uh, but okay, let's, uh, just for purposes of introductions, uh, you're a freelance science journalist, you're an educator, you're a podcaster, you're an insect ecologist, yes. uh, you're many, you have many hats. And uh, I'm not even going to go into the multiple awards that you've gotten through your career. It's just a very short list. <laughs> it's but we can skip that. <laughs> it's quite <laughs> legit though. It's pretty good. So, but let's start in the beginning, right? Mm. Um, where are you from uh, and how did you, like for Jun Kid, he was saying how him studying sales started with him when he was a child on the beach picking up shells. So what's your origin story like? Yeah, mine had nothing to do with beaches <laughs> or sunsets. Right. Yeah. Um, so I have, you know, I, I, I was born in Kuala Lumpur, grew up in Pataling Jaya. Um, and I was very much uh, an urban kid, city boy. And, but, you know, you know I, I, I wouldn't call myself working a lot uh, with the, you know in jungles or forests that, that kind of thing and I am definitely not a, a conservationist by practice although I am you know I write about conservation and the environment a lot uh, but it is not what I do I mean that the conservation part is not what I do for a living but still um, my fascination with nature and particularly like insect behavior began very, very young when I, again, as a young boy, that's what we all do, you know, when it rains, you know, we would be, uh, no, after it rains, I'll be out um, in my gardens or my, my house, it's a, it's a corner lot. And so there's like a, a garden with lots of different plants and trees. 
And yeah, there'll be many insects before and after the rain. And I, I kind of like to see, I, I, I say rain because after rain, it, it, it's cooling, yeah. right? So I will go into the garden and just look at uh, many of the insects. And also because of the rain, um, the ants would usually, uh, before a rain, right? I think the ants can sense the, the change, uh, the increase of humidity in the air. So they know that it's about to rain. So some ants would then, you know, they would pile up, a, you, you will see, you, you, you might have seen it too. They'll pile up this wall of soil around, their ne- around the entrance to their nest. So it's like a, it's like a, a, a blockade against the, the, the water. So like, like a fortress. Yeah, like a fortress, you know, like a wall around their, 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 the nest hole, right? So that would stop or, you know, prevent the water from actually just, you know, uh, flooding into their nest. Mm. And so, yeah, so I, I would observe ants doing that. And I, not just that, not just that behavior, but in, in, in any case, ants. Ants, I think, are really like the the seed of my fascination uh, with insects. And I have spent many, 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 many hours uh, in my garden observing mm. ants and other insects. And and as a you know, as young kids, we 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 used to watch you know kids my age. We used to watch like natural history documentaries on on the TV, and you not know many, cheetahs. Not, not many kids did that. Really? <laughs> oh, okay. I'm living my own world. I'm living my own world. Most of us, our our version was watching Pokemon. That was the closest. We really? Had. Okay. You are that's because you are younger than me. Pokemon wasn't during my time. Right. 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 And so yeah, so um, you know, we would watch. You know, African savannas, you know, mm. cheetahs, lions, and then we see penguins and, and all these exotic animals, right? And, and and that really leaves a lasting impression on, on I think, so many children. Um, I'm not sure if Pokemon will have the same effect, <laughs> but, it, but it really, you know, all these animals on the screen and their behavior. Because it's always animal behavior, yeah. right? That's why, that's why so few of us get interested in plants because... At the time, the documentaries really sh- rarely showed anything about plants. You know, yeah. But plants are really fascinating when it comes to behavior. But, but we will not talk about that, I guess. So, yeah. So, insects in my own garden, observing their behavior. Um, and then, you know, all the natural history documentaries still really got me um, into, into this, um, I guess, affinity yeah. uh, and interest with animals. I wouldn't say nature, you see. I wouldn't say nature, but really with with animals and for me it was a lot towards the insects yeah. yeah I mean when I was younger I I have very vivid memories of red ants yeah and the fear you feel with red ants I was ants. gonna say hopefully good memories <laughs> no man <laughs> bad memories of, well not bad it's like we are fascinated by things that invoke uh, strong emotional reactions right yes. so I mean for us like I think when we look at ants it, it, we don't like anthropomorphize uh, mm-hmm. ants right or insects generally to us they are kind of like a they, we don't relate or project ourselves on insects yeah but then yeah, when right. you see like red ants defend themselves right mm-hmm. by biting you it kind of has a little bit of an effect mm-hmm. or you also feel it's weird kind of um i don't know evolutionary uh reaction when it comes to insects like there's a deep fear of certain insects right yeah well a lot of people fear or are disgusted or repelled by spiders, I guess. Yeah. But of course, spiders are not insects. Yep. But uh, many people, you know, describe them in the same breath. Um. So yeah. So yeah. Yeah. Right. Um. But I would say most of us have not seen an insect, any insect, mm-hmm. up close. 
and well, personal, I guess. Um, like if you put any insect under a a a, a microscope, yeah, a, a magnifying glass may not be able to show the scale that I want you guys to look at it. But if you put it under a microscope, yeah, um, and you would see, say, an ant, for example, that an ant is just just not just you know like a like a small cylinder with six legs and two antenna it's not that like on the head itself or on on its very skin there are so many different structures yeah. horns you know the waist of the end like the first time in fact I, you know I, I i i'm an insect ecologist but the first time i actually saw an end under a microscope was like i think my second year of my undergraduate so you know i was like actually really old you know i think many other kids would have seen them earlier on i mean in the west at least and the first time I saw it, and the first time I saw it, right, and then I saw the the end, the waist of the end. Yeah. There are like horns coming out of it. In fact, I didn't even know that it has this waist. It had this small waist before its waist, and I was so blown away. I didn't even know what the function of that waist was, really. But it was just the surprise that wow, there's like so many things on this small insect on this small end I've always thought it was just like this cylinder this end is just like this three piece cylinder you know stuck together with legs and stuff right I mean anatomically but yeah so I, I, I feel I, I, I suspect that if you show any kid an insect under the microscope and you don't you know sort of uh, inject this uh, air prior fear into them first mm. just show them hey look at this thing mm -hmm. I think they'll be fascinated yeah I don't know whether we are injected with that fear. I do think it's something innate, mm. but that's why we need to, but I guess we have to like update our software and sort of like learn to appreciate these creatures that do give a benefit to us. Well, well, there, there is definitely a benefit to this innate fear, right? If yeah. you look at this uh, really colorful, uh, you know, red and orange insect, uh, <laughs> you would be smart to be cautious sure and not just pick it up say hello <laughs> actually know. it's really funny last week I had a case so I was setting up we do like hearings online now and so I was setting up for my boss so I was in the office early about 7 in the morning mm -hmm. and no one was in the office except a cockroach <laughs> right and I've uh, I I really dislike cockroaches, uh, yeah. you know, and I and I know a lot of people who, who dislike cockroaches guys and girls and so uh, I was like dude you just do your thing. I'm not going to disturb you, but let me set up my my stuff in peace. Don't catch out me. But you know, he, this little cockroach. Cockroaches being cockroaches. Yeah, they you know came towards me and they were like you know going all over. And I was like, ah, welcoming so, you into the office, really. So I had to retaliate, unfortunately, oh, because no. my boss was going to come in and it's going to be a thing. And our cleaner won't come in until much later. So I took our giant bundle of documents and I killed the cockroach legally yeah literally with the law <laughs> uh, yeah trampled by the law yeah. Yeah. and actually I, I I hit it softly at first it went on its uh, head and I thought it died right uh, on its I don't know head, whether the head is the right uh, word for it but then I took a broom to sweep it away so I, while I was sweeping it away it flipped right and it was actually alive and it charged towards me then I had to kill it with the broom the final charge <laughs> the final charge of the cockroach yeah so wouldn't I, be put down easily by the law I had some like pro, like a caveman battle <laughs> my gosh 
And Roshan is, you know, is <laughs> is not a small little yeah, boy. Exactly, yeah. exactly. But I was just, Wait, again, what happened to the cockroach at the end? It, it died like eventually. Ah, I, I killed fellow. it properly, put it aside, and then later the cleaner came and said, Auntie, that's I killed the cockroach. Yeah. But <laughs> uh, but uh it's funny, I was that experience was so funny because I felt genuine fear when it rushed yeah, to me. Yes. And I was like, I actually like started googling after that, like cockroaches and why we have this. Because it's a lot of people have... I know a lot of guys who, who fear cockroaches as well. Mm. So I was reading up about it and um, it's weird because apparently cockroaches are, actually don't... They don't really carry diseases. Uh, so it's actually... Or it might be something in like ancestral past or something. Uh, but it's really, really funny. And in fact, reading about cockroaches and learning... Uh, I mean, we all know how resilient they are. But just this... Um, the mechanisms that they have developed to survive. It's really, really fascinating. Yeah. And so, in fact, one of these um, writers, because she's so afraid of cockroaches, so she actually went to uh, a researcher who studies cockroaches and it's like so, some sort of like exposure therapy. <laughs> so she had the cockroach on her hand and then she would look at it. Like you still are looking at it in a different... Hers is... Oh, oh, do you remember which cockroach she held in her hand? Was it a Madagascar oh, cockroach? I can't recall. One of those hissing Madagascar cockroaches? I can't recall. Really can't recall. Yeah. Those yeah. are tame. Right. Yeah. Are they dangerous are cockroaches? No. You mean, are, you mean worldwide, are they dangerous cockroaches? Uh, are they? Are they? Are they? Uh, I'm no, sure. I don't think so. Hmm. There are about, I think, up to 4,000 species of cockroaches yeah. in the world. And... Yeah, I, I, I will tell you, I am afraid of cockroaches too. Right. Although I'm an, you know, I have a degree in entomology <laughs> yeah. and I have handled, literally, you know, I have handled with my bare hands, uh, I would say scores, if not hundreds of cockroaches uh, over four years uh, for a very fun event um, at my university. And I also, I, I did it. I have always had a fear of well, I wouldn't say like a, a an extreme fear of cockroaches, but if a cockroach crawled to m towards me, well, if it flew towards <laughs> me, I think I would definitely duck out of <laughs> the way and like, you know, have a huge like uh, reaction. But uh, but it, 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 when the event came up and they were asking for volunteers to handle the event, like I volunteered myself because I wanted to do the same thing that, you know, the, the lady that you mentioned did, like exposure therapy or something. I wanted to test it, right? Test myself mm. if I could conquer my fear, not that I'm forced to do this thing. I think every time I had to do the event, I did that for three or four years. I handled it marvelous, marvelously. Right. Everyone sort of like remembered the days when I handled that event. <laughs> Outside of the event, if you ask me to now just pick up a cockroach and throw it out the window, I wouldn't do it. It's funny, yeah? I wouldn't do it. I I, I would say there's no reason for me to do it. <laughs> I would say there's no reason for me to do it. And then my grandma would just come up, and just throw it out. And, and I, yeah, I think, I think, actually cockroaches, yeah, right. They're really, really fascinating. Extremely fascinating for, for many, many reasons. Uh, you know, people use them to study neurology. People use them to study uh, physiology, uh, ecology for sure. Mm -hmm. um, you know, so many things. And I think if, if it's true that many of us have this innate fear of cockroaches that we cannot really explain, then perhaps it's, the cockroaches like strategy uh, that their evolutionary strategy has worked really well for them. Mm. That just that just the sight of them, you know, would repel us and we would, you know, like, you know, you are 
so much bigger than the cockroach, but yeah. even you had difficulty, right? If the cockroach had not charged at you, yeah. it would have survived the day, survived its late night out, <laughs> yeah. and uh, you know, went back to its uh, drain or something. Yeah. So yeah, I... I mean, like with snakes, I can understand. I, I remember reading that, uh, I think <clears throat> there's this theory that humans came from, basically our where we came from was actually trees. I mean, when we were like more primate. Mm-hmm. And so one, one of the biggest predators would have been snakes. Right, because they they chill in the trees, so they would understand why we have this weird history with snakes. So, but cockroaches are a little bit more, and with snakes, at least you know that they are like dangerous. Yeah, uh, I mean, aside from your garden snakes, right, your variety garden snakes, but you have like you know pythons and cobras yeah. and all of that. But co- uh, cockroaches are really really funny. Yeah, I think cockroaches are more of a disgust, la. Yeah, a disgust feeling uh, yeah. that it invokes in us rather than. Uh, you know, a fear for our lives, lah. Mm. I, I think if you look at it, it's, it's it's just more of a disgusting thing. Yeah, it's funny. Um, growing up, when I look at uh media and how they portray uh people who are into entomology, they have a kind of stereotype. You know, they're generally like geeky. Really? Are they all handsome? Ooh, yeah. No, <laughs> not at all. You have been, you have been reading the wrong media. Yeah. They're generally portrayed as like, you know, really weird, odd, recluses, uh, you know, socially awkward. But I have to say you're far from that uh, stereotype. Yeah, I, I don't think there is a stereotype stereotype mm. for for any of the type, you know, any of the scientists of any discipline. Right. I If I look at one scientist, I don't think I can reliably say what they study. So when you meet other entomologists, there, there's no like common characteristic or you know like a aside from that I, I guess interest in insects but I mean like in terms of personality or in terms of no no mm-hmm. I don't think so they are very you know personality wise they are all same, same same as any other discipline I guess right, yeah, right, a, right. A, a variety many of us well <laughs> I think of course all of us love insects yeah um but, you know, there would be some people... You expect that all entomologists would not be afraid of insects. But here, I am... Exactly, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah I'm yeah. afraid of many different types of insects. <laughs> grasshoppers, praying mantis, cockroaches. Yeah, those three. Grasshoppers are pretty freaky, actually. Yeah, uh, and, and uh, they have evolved to be... their colors and, you know, they have these spikes on their yeah, yeah, hind legs, which, yeah. which can actually hurt yeah, you yeah. If, um, if they kick at you. Uh, praying mantis is just... Look at how they eat their prey. It's yep. just horrible, <laughs> cruel, but very fascinating. I mean, they're all fascinating, um, yeah. despite what I might, you know, whether I fear them or not. Yeah. Do you ever, like, from your time studying insects, have you seen any behavior in insects that has made you uh, sort of, like, more aware of uh, human being, uh, the things that human beings do? Do you, do you get what I'm saying? Like sometimes mm-hmm. we look at how, how like pack animals move and then we can see like or apes or chimps or uh, bonobos or whatever, right? Mm-hmm. Then we say, oh, I can see where uh, humans have common characteristics. Do you have any like uh, uh, similar observations with insects? Mm-hmm. I, 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 wouldn't, I, I wouldn't say so. Mm. When, I, when I study insects, uh, when I study insects' behavior, I really look at it. Uh, we have to look at it from their point of view, or we try to look at it from their point of view, which is actually a false pretense, really. Right. Because how are we able to do that? Um, uh, no matter how we do it, like we we are sort of uh, putting our own mindsets onto them. And no, I I I I I don't think I've had what you just described. Mm-hmm. Although, 
um, there was you no know, the um, the main the main project of the main hypothesis of my uh, graduate research was to study why this one insect, this species of insect, which is called the general name is called the big eye bugs, uh, of course. Mm. Um, why were they or why are they cannibalistic? Were these uh, the insects on like the uh the cornfields or the the cotton? Yes, cotton fields. Cotton so fields, I studied right? I studied these insects in in cotton fields in, in California. Mm. Um. So <clears throat> so many of the insects are cannibalistic, which means they'll eat their own kind. Mm. Some will even eat their own young. Mm. And so I I had wonder. I mean I I discovered that this particular species of insect would not eat their own eggs. Or actually would not eat any eggs of their own kind, whether it's theirs or another females, if they were alone with those eggs. Mm. But all you need to uh, invoke this uh, cannibalistic uh, streak in them is you just need to show this female another female Mm. in the same area. Mm. And suddenly, this female, which had not been eating any of its own eggs, would turn cannibalistic and eat up to 30% of the eggs. Now that's, right. that's a huge difference yeah, from more or less like 0 to 30%. Yeah. And all you need to, to, to trigger that is to show them another female. So why? I don't know. Any, for for any, you, for you, do you think that 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 is that has any similarity to human behavior? Uh, do any mother suddenly start eating their own child when they see another woman in the neighborhood? Well, definitely not. <laughs> oh, not to the extreme of eating their own child. Or, not not yeah. the extreme of eating your own child. But I guess there is this thing because it seems like this ant sees another threat mm-hmm. and so that triggers some sort of reaction to eat its own. Yeah. So yeah. I'm just wondering like whether there's with human beings when you see a threat there's also uh, weird like for example when COVID happened right and uh, everyone started like stocking up on toilet paper Right, it's like, and it was like psycho kind of behavior. Like it was not even rational at that point, right? Yes, yeah. The amount of toilet paper people were hoarding, yeah. so it's like you very quickly kind of abandon the collective or societal responsibilities, and you go suddenly become super individualistic. Yeah, I have no idea how that connects with ants, but I'm just saying that I, I see w- what how things can change when. When yeah. the threat is detected. So it's it's each for its own, right? Yeah. And of course, you know, when, when I saw this kind of results, then we have to think, why would why how has this behavior evolved? Mm. And it's a very strong behavior because we have been able to repeat the same results again and again. So we would, you know, the similar we are humans, of course, we can only give it a very human kind of uh, explanation from an evolution sense that, oh yeah, so if I'm a female. And we, we have other ways to show that the female cannot differentiate between its eggs and another eggs from another female. So you can't tell. So you give it 10 eggs and she's alone. <clears throat> she will not eat any of the eggs. Yeah. Whereas there is actually a benefit for to her for eating eggs that are not her own, right? Yeah. Just, you know, reduce the competition for her children, right? Right, right. And she has nothing to lose. But she doesn't if she's alone. And, and, and the moment you put another female in, perhaps we think, perhaps, because this female has no way of differentiating right. which is her children and which is not. Yep, yep, the moment yep. I see another female, wow, if I don't eat the eggs, somebody might. Right. And so she eats some of the eggs. Perhaps another way to look at it is, oh no, there's another female in the area. Maybe some of these eggs aren't mine. 
Uh, there's a less likely there's a, there's a smaller chance that these are all my eggs right. you know what so let's eat some right you see so and you know if you think about it humans would, would act in very similar ways mm. you know um, if I'm the only one here you know I'll take my time I'll be nice but once there's competition then the whole formula the calculation changes mm. and then uh, we would tend to act I guess uh, you know you say more selfishly but it's 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 all rational. Yeah. Uh, it's it's rational from their point of view, but perhaps not rational if you have the complete information of the whole system, right? Mm. That's because you know very well, hey, there are one thousand toilet rows, mm. and there are only a hundred people going after one thousand toilet rows. So mm. don't freak out. Yeah. But that for the person who is looking at, oh my gosh, I only have one row left in my house, and I see another ninety nine people running towards. You know yeah. the grocery store. Are you gonna expect them to say, "Hey, don't don't freak out"? No, they won't because they don't have all the information. It's a very like guttural, instinctive reaction. It's yeah. reactionary, like, Basically, mm-hmm. like I guess we have systems in place that our body, like you know, like um, uh, fight or flight. Yeah, you know, your prefrontal just shuts down, mm-hmm. and you, your instincts just kick in. And these are, I guess, survival mechanics that have been passed on to us. And I guess. Uh, Ants especially, they just have that. Like, they don't really have like... Uh, oh, I think all insects have that. It's not just sure. ants. Yeah. And, and, and the insect I was talking about is not an ant. It's a, right. it's a bug. It's a, it's, right, it's right, a right, true sorry. bug, I think we'll call it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I was reading also one of your articles. You were talking about how... I think it was ants and how... Or a type of insect. Mm-hmm. And they were looking at something like how... Um, the longevity of the the lifespan changes. Yeah. yeah. Uh, I think it was uh, whether they what role they take on, right? Was yes. that ants? Yes, that was ants. Uh, that was uh, wow, quite a difficult. It uh, was a di- it was a difficult article to read. Oh <laughs> no! Don't say that. No. <laughs> no, because the concepts were quite yes, yes. Uh, uh, complex. Yes, right? it, it actually it is. Uh, it is a quite uh technical uh article to write. Mm. Uh, but. Wow, okay. No, now that you say it's difficult to read no, as and, in and you it, are in the legal profession, <laughs> no, no, oh my no. gosh. As yeah. in it was like, the, I mean, the very fact that I bring it up, it was fascinating. Mm. It was interesting to read. Yeah. But I think because it was so technical and it, yes. it involves a lot of things, so it was like, yeah. it kind of gave me like, uh, uh, like yeah, a so, migraine. So, so, so that was, yeah, I, 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 I totally understand. So that was um, uh, quite a long story uh, on how uh, in social insects, so for example, ants, mm. bees, wasps, uh, you know, uh, they would, uh, the 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 longevity or how long each of those individual and leaves, you know, including termites, would change a lot based on their role in the colony. For example, mm. the queen ant lives many many times longer than the worker ant. Yeah, and actually, they have very 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 similar, if not identical, genomes. Well, not identical, sorry, but very similar genomes, very similar genomes. And how would it be that, you know, actually, I take that back. Uh, in many of the ends we know, that, that we as in the public know, we think that the queen gives birth to uh, the rest of the colony, right? So then in that case, there would be a, very, a slight difference in, in their genes. But in, in also many other uh, ends uh, that we are less familiar with, the larger public is less familiar with, the, 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 the queen has the same genome as the rest of the colony. So they're all clones. Right. Except that out of these 100 clones, one of them is in charge of laying eggs. Mm. And that one individual 
lives like many times longer than the rest of the colony. Mm. So how does it activate that? that yeah, so, so obviously, you know, if they have the same genomes, in, if they're all clones, then something must have changed in the activation mm. uh, or what we call the expression of the genes that cause this one egg-laying individual to live much longer, mm. right? And it's not even like they have more nutrition or anything. You can make it all the same. But even in the safety of a, a lab, the workers will still die fast. And then the queen will continue living a long time. Yeah. So, yeah, so that's that's the gist of uh, the, the the article. I mean, of course, the article, you know, the, it, uh, it, I, I spoke to many scientists to, to, to write the article. And I, I'm not sure we want to go into explaining it, but, yeah. the, but I, I guess the easiest, ex to, to put it simply, is that it benefits... Well, on one hand, it benefits the the it benefits all the individuals in the colony for that egg laying queen mm. to live long because all the eggs the longer she lives, then the more eggs she can produce, and all those eggs are like sisters and brothers of everyone else. Yeah. So all our genes get multiplied many many times as long as this individual lives longer. Mm. That is not the entirely correct way to say it, sure, sure, but that's sure. the simple way to say it. Yeah, I think ants are the the are uh, very fascinating, and we often go to ants when we want to talk about like collective responsibility, mm -hmm. like how and I'm whether wrongly or rightly. Sometimes we try and project that at humans. If only human beings, everyone worked in uniformity, all recognizing their individual parts, mm -hmm. and everyone did everything perfectly, mm -hmm. then you know you could build this entire system and everyone yeah. worked smoothly, right? But I mean, the problem is we all have individuality, right? So we mm -hmm. we don't we can't be like ants. We you know yeah. Well, ants have personalities too. Do they? Yes, yes. Individual, um, yes, it's not the easiest thing to study, but I think it can be safely argued that, um, that I think it can be safely argued that every individual animal has a personality. A personality mm. is, uh, you know, when we put it scientifically, is just a norm, a behavioral norm that you can see in this individual that, uh, that is repeated across different situations. So, for example, if we say aggression. Yeah. If this 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 individual is, has an aggressive personality, mm. you will see that in many situations it acts more aggressively than, than the others, than the others right. and it's repeated. So this is a personality, it's a right. behavioral norm in this one individual, and you can see it in in in, in insects, in oh, of course in in all some of the I guess the vertebrate animals, you know the mammals. Of course, if you would definitely say our dogs, our cats have personality. Nobody argues with that. Yeah. It, but it's the same. I think you can argue the same for um for 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 insects and. It's um, to say that ants have no individual or selfishness and thus they are so united in, you know, a, as a society is also not true, of course. Um, you just need to look at the way that they carry something. It's not the most effective way. Yeah. You know, when you say, oh, ants are so united, they carry the <laughs> big food, you know, back to the nest. But you look at it, it's like, wow, they're all pulling in their own direction and <laughs> somehow they go in one direction because somebody, you know, there's a collective direction or they, they go towards it, but that's not the most effective way. And they are also, they are, they are, they are cheaters. They are, they are cheaters in, in the system too. Um, but that's cheaters uh, meaning cheaters meaning um well they are not honest uh so even when it comes to reproduction they could be, for example the queen right you expect that the queen 
lays the egg. So everyone is in, in, in our, I guess in our mindset, in the easy you know, mind, set, mind frame that we have for, of, of these social insects, everyone is united to, to, to work for the queen. And that's great because if the queen prosper, the colony prospers. And you, you, we see these pictures of everyone tending to the, to the queen, right? Like brushing her, cleaning her, feeding her. But there could be other individuals. But then why don't other individuals in the nest usurp her position, kill the queen and become the new queen? Right. Why not? In fact, they are. They do. Mm. Um, it just it's just a little bit more complicated than the picture that we are used to. So the queen, for example, queen bees, will actually have to actively go around and sniff out uh, you know, some of the uh, females that seem to have developed, uh, I guess, reproductive functions and suppress Damn. them. So, so she releases hormones that suppress their reproductive function. Right. So it's not as harmonious as we think it is. And it all makes sense to the scientists because we see it all in the light of evolution. Mm-hmm. So it has to be a. Uh, we are going to get very technical here, but go for it. Go for it. Yeah. Well, well. Actually, I'm not sure. I want to go far <laughs> more because it's, it's just that like, we see that um, it it works because the this this system works out because the most I guess uh efficient or the the most effective genes get passed on. Yeah. And this way it works. So even if they're cheaters, for Basically example, evolution now. Yeah. Yeah. So so. Uh, there would be cheaters that uh, sneakily uh, reproduce within the colony. Mm. And then if the queen finds out, she kills them. But there will still be a number of these cheaters that, that, that actually get their mission done. Yeah. And so this cheating behavior is, of course, controlled by genes. And these genes get passed on. The fact that these cheaters, we still see them, means that the genes are quite... No, they have some survival value in them. Yeah. And so after, you know, these millions of years, we still see this behavior within what we thought was a very harmonious society. Ultimately, if it facilitates the passing of genetic material, yes. these, these uh, mechanisms will also uh, be passed on. La. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Because it works. But I guess I have a new appreciation of how complex ants' behaviors are. Oh, ants' and behaviors are really, really complex. The society is, is complex. I mean, the individual itself is already complex and then you put them together. Oh, it's... it's uh, hopefully that gives you a new appreciation for how difficult it was <laughs> to write that article. That, <laughs> yeah. that article was was one of my dream articles to write about because wow. I've I've read about it for some time. You know this this field of research, yeah. And and to write it, I think it it took quite a bit of my uh my my skills to write it. And then uh, it was very fun also, like speaking to all the different scientists and, and learning about all the things they do. Um, but it's uh. And even the scientists have uh, they have not been able to really unify their field uh, this specific field to mm. come up with like a, a, a grand theory to explain the longevity differences in social insects mm. or, or more or, or, the, or to put the other way around why do social insects live so much longer than the, the non-social insects. Mm. Yeah, why do the queen bee live longer than, say, for example, the moth? Mm. And in fact, why do the queen bee live so much longer than the individual worker bee? In fact, isn't it true that uh, there's sort of a... Whenever there's a creature that uh, has children, it kind of also ages the creature uh, substantially. When it? When, like, for example, if, like, say, uh, a 
any creature has a, a offspring, yep. doesn't that also age the creature? Yes. So, uh, that is what we expect. That is yeah. now okay. You caught me at a time. I don't even remember the the actual theory <laughs> for that. So yes. Yeah. So we have always uh, we have always observed that there is a trade off between reproduction and longevity. Yeah, exactly. So f- like for humans, right? We seem to be but physically fit and getting fit and fitter until we reach like reproduction reproductive age. You know, yeah. We start to wear down when we, you know, 25, 30. Before that, we were like, wow, no problem. Uh, you know, you know, going up and down Batu Caves like a hundred <laughs> times. Okay, exaggerated. But, <laughs> but, but once you have, once you started, uh, you know, giving birth, women especially, then your, your body just starts to wear down so much more biologically. And we have always assumed that, uh, that there's this universal trade-off between reproduction and longevity. Mm. But in social insects, that's not the case. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so the in some of the ants, right? It's like it's as if the more that the more eggs they lay, the the less aging you observe. Mm. Like, uh, physiologically, they show no sign of wear and tear. Mm. In in the some of the the the, the queen ants and uh, the termite uh, queens, it's, it's it's really amazing. So then they they die of what? They just die. They just die. They just uh, die. That is also very difficult to, to, to see because you have to wait. For example, some of these black ant queens, mm. they live up to 30 years. How are you going to be able to catch the moment they drop dead? Right. So the scientists tell me, told me that they will be fine up to the day they drop dead. Right. So you can't tell. And, and how many samples do you have? <laughs> it's, you see, that's how difficult it is to, to study them. Uh, how can you tell that the, the, the queen is aging? the technology that we have now, you have to actually destructively sample. That means you actually, when, when, you, when you test that queen individual, it, you, you kill it. Mm-hmm. You have to you know, mash it up and, 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 and uh, analyze it, right? So then that's gone. Mm-hmm. <laughs> if, 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 if you sample it when it's age 29, that's it. Right. You, where, where will you get your age 30 <laughs> end, right? Yeah, yeah. That's that's how difficult it is. So what they need is you know a method that like that many of the mammals or, or even some of the fly studies have that they, they don't have to kill the insect to actually examine it. Right. Yeah. Um you went into I mean you 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 studied this uh area, yeah. but you didn't go into research per se. You actually I think I think a better way to describe it is you became an educator in the sense that you became a teacher. Uh, you've be- you've be- you've started a podcast. You're a writer. It seems that every endeavor that you've begun ha- uh, is somehow or another oriented towards educating people on this uh, different, on, on this di- not only about uh, uh, insects but also about science in general, right? Mm-hmm. So, what was the shift? Why why go into this area? Uh, yeah. Well, actually, I wanted to do research for like the longest of time. You mm. know, since I was twenty one years old. I have always imagined, I've always planned to be a researcher. Right. Um, and I have, I have stuck to that path up until I was 31. So I was back in Malaysia for three years as a lecturer and researcher. And I was doing research. Um, I had students with me. Um, but I guess for many reasons that perhaps we shall not discuss, sure. I decided to um, switch my career out mm. of the university and uh, at the time, at the time I was 31 years old and I thought, yeah, okay. At the, at the time when I was 31 years old, that was in 2014. Malaysia 
keep say, kept saying that we want to produce more scientists. We want to produce more scientists. And I felt that I don't think we lack scientists. Okay, maybe we lack good scientists in, in huge numbers, but we don't lack the sheer number of scientists. Just look at all the students that are coming in, into the universities. But I felt like, oh, maybe we lack science communication. Like the bridge between our scientists and the larger public and the bridge between our scientists and the policymakers. So, okay, I was like, okay, I, 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 you're right. So I, I, my first love has always been to teach. You know? Even when I was a researcher, I, was def I definitely enjoyed the teaching uh, more than the research. You were lecturing in UTP, right? UPM. UPM, sorry. Yeah, yeah University of Petra, Malaysia. And yeah, the students there were great. I, mm. I didn't leave because of, stu because of the students. I, if, if anything, I, I really miss teaching in, in UPM. But so at the time, I was like, okay, let's, let's maybe I was thinking... Uh, if I'm going to leave the university, a public university, like what, what else would I do? Do I want to go on teaching in a private university? Like what would I do? I was like, okay, since I'm, since I'm already contemplating changing the path, I might as well try a, like a bigger shift. I said, okay, let's try science communication because I felt there was a gap. And so I moved out of the academia and I went, I went into, um, I started at a radio station. and uh, Yeah, you, BFM, right? Yeah, BFM 89.9. Mm. And started, you know, doing what I thought was science communication. What, actually, what does that entail, science communication? Well, science communication is just, um, it's, it's uh, communicating scientific knowledge to the larger public. And that's it. Right. That's, that, that's really it. Yeah, I think every science journalist is a science communicator. But, uh, science communicators aren't necessary science journalists. So the um so 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 where was I? Yeah. So then I, I started doing that and here I am now. Yeah. Interesting, interesting. And um like just coming back to you lecturing mm -hmm. and you seeing um that there's quality of students that are coming in, it's just that maybe we're not communicating communicating effectively with the grassroots uh, communities. Is that is that accurate? Um, what what I what I meant was we were producing uh, high numbers of science graduates, mm. but then why is there such a gap between scientific knowledge that's produced in the universities mm. and what is being communicated to the public? Yeah, you just look at our newspapers. Like, how often do you get like? good reporting of what University Malaya, UPM, USM, UKM is doing. Yeah. I mean, like, is, yeah, our reporting is, is really superficial. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, I definitely felt growing up, we were not really exposed to, I mean, we, we were exposed to like conservation, mm -hmm. but maybe in the most simplest sense, like reuse, recycle, and all that, the three R's and whatever, right? Mm -hmm. But, um, I think we were not really like exposed to um, the diversity of what we have in Malaysia. Mm -hmm. And we were not exposed to like the beauty. Like if you want people to care, right? You have to get them invested, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to get them to fall in love with it. Mm -hmm. Like once you fall in love with it, you're invested in it, you will want to protect it. Mm -hmm. But I feel like that for me, la, growing up, there was a disconnect because especially growing up in the city, you don't see a lot of things. And in fact, we consume Western Western media. Yeah. So you don't really see how expensive Malaysia is. 
uh, like Sabahans and Sarakins were a for, like foreign concept to us, except for the costumed figures <laughs> in our textbooks. What more like and the crocodiles? Yeah, we know there are crocodiles there. Yeah. yeah. So what more like the the forests, uh, and the environment and the ecosystems that are there, uh, that are or like for example, even like things like the how beautiful our islands are, or like uh how like the amazing diving spots we have in the country, how Westerners appreciate them more than uh, locals sometimes. Not not all the time, but a, a lot of times, right? Yeah. So what you described is uh, to convey the, yeah, as you said, you know, the diversity uh, and the beauty of the nature that we have here in Malaysia. Um, that is a crucial part. That is definitely something that a good science communicator or any good writer can do. Can mm. do. Um, I think for, for me, from my, from my perspective, what we really, really lack when it comes to science communication or science journalism, really, in Malaysia is for the public to appreciate how science is actually done, to appreciate the scientific method, to appreciate the flaws that is inherent in the scientific process, that scientists are not, you know, our, our, our results are not perfect. We are bound, we are limited by you know, this, the samples that we have. We are limited by the hypotheses that we are able to come up with. We are limited by so many things, by the resources that we can have at the university. And so, you know, we, 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 we say that that is why, you know, on Monday you, re you read that coffee is good for you. Then on Tuesday, you know, you, they say coffee is bad. Then, you know, on Wednesday they say, oh, maybe coffee is good if you drink it three times a day. Then it changes all the time. So mm. I, think, I think to me, what is a real, real gap is this, um, this, this like appreciation, yeah, for how scientists actually do their work and what they need to do their work well. Yeah. I think that is really lacking. It's probably like absent yeah. in, in our reporting. Yeah. But as I wanted to affirm you also, because like I think that's why I that's why I think the work that you're doing is like really cool and really really important. I. I'm careful in saying this, but I'm glad that you're not doing research yeah. uh, because this is like, what you're doing now is really, really needed. Of course, if you want to do research, I mean, you don't need my permission, but I know all the best, but I do want to affirm you because the work you're doing right now is really, really important. <clears throat> Even your podcast, I really enjoyed it. Yeah. You know? okay. Yeah, yeah. I really enjoyed the podcast, especially Thanks. the ones yeah. uh, about, uh, I mean, you basically have two kinds of um, episodes. You have the ones about- Four or five no, episodes, no, no. that's all. Yeah. <laughs> no, you have like about now. five. Yeah. But what I mean is you have an episode that covers... Yeah, two types. Yeah. Uh, yeah, covers like journalism, science journalism, or the one that ones that cover sort of uh, conservation, I guess. Or it, it's the, One would be the science journalism and the other is like the scientific finding yeah. of it. Yeah. So one is talking to the scientist and the other is talking to the science journalist. Yeah, yeah. exactly. And um, I mean, even you're like that episode about... Wild balls in oh yeah, uh, wild pigs. Yeah, yeah wild yeah. pigs. Yeah, it was so fascinating. Like yeah. hearing about the different types of pigs, like yeah. the Barbie Roosters yeah, and the that. bearded yeah. pigs, and uh, yeah. what's the one? The what is the what? Uh, oh, don't ask me. I'm very bad with names. Yeah, like I yesterday, recall. I was asked this same question, and I cannot name a single <laughs> of the pigs that I actually did a podcast on. It's like. Yeah, embarrassing. But I found it really, really fascinating. Like just to know that there's like even when it comes to pigs, that it's so diverse, right? Yeah. And even talking about like uh like you spoke to two people yep. and that guy was talking you all were talking about how uh, diseases uh spread in Yeah, in, Matthew in, Linky, right? I think yeah. yeah. And then he was giving an example of how like one of it uh one 
it tra- it travels like in really odd ways. One of it was like through a, like I think a dumpling or something like that. Yeah, the yeah. the I think the virus. I can't remember if it was a virus or a, a bacteria. Yeah, it was. Uh, it survived on the dumpling. Yeah, right on the meat on the dumpling or something, and then yeah. It's crazy and it's really, really fascinating. So, yeah, I just think that you're, you're doing really, really good work. I, and even your uh, writings, right? You've been, you're an independent writer. And we're going to talk about uh, Makaranga, which is your uh, environmental journal, journalist portal. Yeah. Right? Or environmental journalism portal. Yep. Yeah. Uh, but you've you've also been featured on like, really really well known I mean I read your article on the in the Atlantic mm-hmm. you write for Science uh, what other uh, Science News some yeah. of the bigger names uh, yeah would be Atlantic I think well, for this region I think Atlantic many people do not know uh, but Atlantic like, is legit it's really, yeah. really legit yeah well all, all I would say all the all the uh, the magazines have their strength and their own audiences so the Atlantic Science I've written from Nikkei Asia which maybe some of the people in this region know better there's uh, SCMP yeah um, yeah yeah um, so yeah you you just to talk to touch a little bit about uh, journalism mm-hmm. yeah, in Malaysia because that's also a bit of your passion science journalism yeah um, w- how has it been? I guess that what's the differences or what are the advantages or pros or uh, advantages, disadvantages, pros and cons between educating, like, for example, in a classroom or through a podcast where it's verbal communication and through writing, Mm -hmm. right? And some of the stuff you write is pretty long form and technical, right? So, like, uh, is there something you prefer uh, or what what are the, yeah, your thoughts? Well, if if it comes, when it comes to education, just Mm -hmm. the teaching-wise, um, in the classroom, I would always pick that mm. above any other format. Right. Because it is the most effective for the audience. Yeah, of course, it is a limited reach because I could only reach the people in front of me in the classroom. But I think it is most effective for that person in the classroom. And it's also the most enjoyable and effective for myself. I could instantly see if it works i could see the reaction in the person and i could follow up with questions i could change right on the spot um and it's so interactive and that gives us all the energy that we want it gives us the a real um communication real-time communication definitely anytime like in classroom uh, i would choose that there's an energy in a, a classroom setting, right? Yes, and it, it, you know we feed off that, right? Mm. And 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 some people have that personality, and and they are better when it comes to in-person teaching. I think I am that kind of person. Um, whereas podcasts, yeah, I can't really comment on that. I I I I'm, I I do not know how effective uh my podcasts are. I've only done. Uh, a few of the episodes. Uh, the podcast is called Monsoon. Yeah. And I, yeah, that that plan was derailed by a fellowship. So it's uh, I'm still paying every month to sustain <laughs> that thing. I was like, oh my gosh. But anyway, um, but of course, you know, when you write and or when you do a podcast, you you do not get the immediate response of your audience. Like for example, we are talking now, and you know, maybe three years later there'll still be people listening into what we are saying today. Um, but things will have changed and, and we, we won't know and we cannot change the podcast three years later. And 
uh, the same when it goes for writing. And we cannot tell, you know, if say, for example, Ali, who's listening now, what, how, what is he feeling? What are his questions? Mm. We can't tell. And so we cannot change, we cannot adapt on the spot to, to, to help him understand better. Um, I think that is, for me, like the biggest limit of podcasts or, or writing. But the reach is great. Mm. The reach is, 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 is far bigger than in, in classroom. And for writing, writing, you know, it, a good writer can really touch somebody. You know, a good writer can really touch uh, the reader because although I say, you know, we, we don't have this real-time interaction, but a good writer through their words can connect with the reader, not just between the writer and the reader, but also connect the reader with whatever the writer is writing about. Hmm. And, and, and because, you know, especially when there are no photos, it's just all words, you are letting the reader conjure up their mm. own world. Yeah. And you have no control over that, of course. Um, but the, f the, the reader will feel a, a stronger connection with that world that they, they conjure up. Mm. And because we are journalists, so it's, everything is real. So although they conjure up, uh, you know, they, they imagine their world based on what we reported, but some of the facts remain, right? You know, for example, we say, oh, the, the, the logger who has been logging for 40 years, just that if I don't go on to describe anymore, you would have this you know, imagination of a logger who has done it for 40 years. But then if I add a few more details, you, know, you fit those details into your picture, but it, was, it still wouldn't match what I actually have seen, right? Yeah. And I, I think that's a wonderful part of uh, writing that they actually make up that world themselves and they feel a connection to that. Um, That's the beauty of books in general. Yes, right? yes. That, yeah. that the writer uh, lays it out, but it's, it, it's, not a, it's not one way because the, the reader still has to imagine the world. Yes, yeah. But the, but the writer cannot change on the spot. Like mm. It's already written. And the writer doesn't really know how the world accepts or, re or, or you know, responds to mm. their pieces. Like, I don't know. Like, you know, the, the, the end story, the social insect story that I wrote for science, I put so much hard work into it. I love it. The editors love it. The scientists love it. But do the readers actually love it? Mm. I don't know because there's no comment section for, for that science article. So I, I really don't know. So as, as a writer, I mean, this is an interesting question, right? But would you write something mm -hmm. if you knew that you really loved it, you're really passionate about it, but it would not get any traction I, I wouldn't write it that way. Right, right. I would, that, you know, if I, you know, I'm not going to waste my time doing that. I, if I do it, then I'll be writing in my diary. Right. Right, then it's for myself. Then yeah. I don't have to care about who reads it or who doesn't. Yeah. But, and in fact, if I do it the way you, you describe, then nobody is going to buy that piece. Sure. Like, I, 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 I sell my stories, right? So no editor is going to take that piece. So... I have, it is my job and it is my, it is my, uh, yeah, it is my job, my duty to write it in a way that the readers, uh, even if they dislike it, at least they would read it. Mm. They don't have to disagree, they don't have to agree with me for sure, but uh, they would, it would uh, prompt them, it would keep them engaged, hopefully till the end. Mm, mm, mm. and does not mislead them but does not mislead them yeah. is there like a community of science writers in Malaysia are you one of 
because even on your podcast you have one from Singapore one from Indonesia I yeah, think yeah. so but are there writers in Malaysia as well or, or are you like uh, there are science there are many science communicators in Malaysia mm-hmm. there are mm-hmm. uh, many of our scientists are science communicators too sure but when it comes okay science writers could arguably arguably be science communicator science communicators or people who write you know science textbooks you could call them science writers too sure, sure. or people who write scripts for um science documentaries on on Netflix so they are science writers too so yeah i think we 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 have them i can't say how many but we we have them and there's actually like um a facebook group that's mm. called uh science communicators malaysia something mm. like that uh, of which I'm a member. I can't remember <laughs> the name now. But um, so yeah, so there there is a community of science communicators. But science journalists, no. Uh, no, there, there is no community of science journalists. Oh, what, what, what's the difference? Yeah, this is a very tricky question. Um, if, yeah. So for me, okay. For, for me, if, if I say I'm a science communicator, like what kind of science communicator would you, would you, would you trust in? If it's uh if it's a doctor, for example, uh on COVID COVID nineteen, right? If a doctor comes out and writes an article on COVID nineteen, you would trust their writing. Compared to a, a reporter, a science journalist who writes the same article, you would trust them too, but for different reasons. For the doctor, as a science communicator, you trust them because of their expertise. For the reporter, you're not trusting them for their expertise in medicine. Mm. You're trusting them for their independence and their analytical skills. Right. So you trust them that in, in there. So it's, it's different. Like if the doctor goes on to write something about black hole, mm. you're, you're likely going to say, oh my gosh, I'm right. going to trust this, right? Yeah, yeah, but yeah. the same reporter can write about black hole and you will still trust them because of their independence and they have then spoken to many other experts on, on, on black holes to write that piece of article. Uh, so uh, to me, that's yeah. the difference between science communicator whom we would trust for their expertise and then the science journalists whom we trust for their independence. Yeah. I mean, that, and that's why you you have also covered like a wide array of topics. Uh. You've written about dangers of asbestos. Yeah. You've written about precision in medicine. Yeah. You've written about uh, snake bites in uh, Indonesia. So I guess you're, and also uh, deforestation, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so you've covered quite a wide array of topics. There's a general theme to it, but like you said, la, like uh, a person who is just uh, entomologists wouldn't be able to write about all these different things. They can write if they want, of course. Yeah. But then uh, it's up to the reader to, to you know how much would you trust an entomologist to write about precision medicine. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Understood. Yeah. So, so yeah, there is. I think I've been I've been doing this since 2014, right? As a science, uh, say science journalist, and so far. Very few, very, very, very few. On one hand, I can count all of the science journalists here in Malaysia that I have uh, encountered and reached out to. None of them are actually actively working. Some of them have left the country. Mm. Some of them have gone on to do other work. Some of them are not active at all. None of them has been like a, a, a full-time freelance science journalist like I have been. I mean, there are no, there are no science bit. Mm. No science desk in our newsroom, in yeah. our media. There's I, no science desk. I was just yeah. going to ask you about that. Uh, a lot of your stuff comes out on international portals. <laughs> Almost all. Yeah. And 
I get that. Like monetarily, that would make sense as well because yep. they would be able to pay you much better. Yeah. Uh, uh, but is it because there isn't um? How do I say this? Uh, with Malaysian outlets, is it a problem where there is no demand yeah. or is it a problem of they are unable to uh, pay that in a way that will make it sustainable for you to pro- provide your services to them? I think, first of all, there is the, the newsrooms here do not see a demand. They mm. do not see a need for a science desk mm. uh, or to uh, commission local writers to write original science articles for them. That's crazy to me though. Uh, I think the newsroom must have made their own uh, strategies and mm-hmm. to them it makes sense. So if, if you flip open, you know, our main mainstream newspapers, like, you know, for the English ones, um, you'll see that there are long science articles, but they're all syndicated from overseas, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> you We read more about... Uh, the states we, we read more about something happening in USA than what happens here right we read more about the uh i guess uh the I yeah, know, the bald I, eagle yeah, yeah, than no. we read about hornbills here i remember yeah. reading in the star newspaper one time the grand canyon had there was something weird with their wolf population or something mm-hmm, like that yeah. so it's weird that the star newspapers <laughs> you know published something about that like yeah, yeah the question there is if for the same uh spread say, uh, maybe 2,000 words, you know, they, if they have a choice between paying the, the, the syndication for that uh, Wolf article mm. in the United States and in comparison to uh, a local writer here writing about, say, uh, what's something about well, tigers, I think they might take it because it's so charismatic. Yeah. Uh, something less. Uh, the wild dogs. So we have wild dogs. I don't remember the name of it. It starts with a D in our jungles. Right. right, 2,000 words on that. Would, for example, would the star pick the local writer with the 2,000 words and pay them well? Uh, you have to speak to the star editor for that. In my experience, it's no. Mm-hmm. I think somehow there is no demand, there is no monetary return for the newsrooms, so they, they, don't, they don't do it. And I have colleagues, science communicators, um, Dr. Maha, who has been doing, trying to develop this field for many years um, and trying to, I think, develop a market for it. Oh, it's so difficult. I'm not a business person. I, I fail terribly as a business person. Mm. So I, I really not in, in, in a position to say how we can develop this market. But somehow it needs to be done. Otherwise, in the meantime, what I, I try to do is I try to gather science journalists or people who wish to be science journalists here in Malaysia and we train ourselves first. Mm. I mean, if there's no market in Malaysia that we can make a living out of, then we can train ourselves and write for overseas magazines, overseas newspapers first. So then when the, when there is an opportunity locally, we are here, we are ready to, to, to grab it. I think, I, I think for me, that's what I can do. So is Makaranga is also like a response to the lack of uh, Makaranga uh, is resource. a response to the lack of in-depth analytical environmental reporting in Malaysia. Now right. that Malaysia has like plenty of environmental reporting, you know, don't get me wrong. Hmm. And I think in the nineties or maybe yeah, earlier on, uh, we have some very good in-depth analytical features in our mainstream media. But I, I, I think of late. Uh, say in the last ten years, you know, it is it's it's not there. 
and very many things are quite superficial or, or very rare. You know, very rare you come across uh, a piece that very goes very in depth and explains the whole issue comprehensively. And so Makaranga is a response to that. Yeah. And it's funny because like now, uh, conservation or uh, the environment, it's such a hot topic now. Yep. And even in Malaysia, in the context of like, uh, like I want to talk to you about deforestation, but even the context of oil palm and how we're getting so much of pushback from Western and European countries, right? Mm -hmm. It's such a hot topic now. Like in terms of it being very practical, like we need to engage in these conversations because it's coming to a point it might even hurt our economy. Yep. Because whether you think like the European Union have their own agenda or whatever, but the point is there is still a sort of a pushback and it needs to be addressed, right? Like I was hearing that now if you like, I think buy products in anywhere in the European Union, they like identify if it's palm oil based mm -hmm. and they say like they market it as this is destroying the mm -hmm. environment, yeah. right? And if you don't address that, they're going to opt to different products using I don't know what, la, like a peanut oil or whatever. Yeah, well, for sure, they're not going to move to peanut oil or, <laughs> I mean, soy, uh, yeah. or soybean because that's, uh, I think that environmentally is also very destructive. Yeah. Um, yes, you're right. We have to address it. But who, 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 who should be addressing it? Mm. And whom do we trust to address it? Mm. Can we trust the ministers who, of course, have their own agenda in, in, in how they address this? Can we trust... For example, say the environmental NGOs who 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 also have their agenda. Mm. I think what is needed is a, 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 a independent media that is so brave and it's not afraid and has a track record of investigating any party, whether it's the government, whether it's the environmental NGOs, uh, whether it's you know this Western uh, you know criticism that's coming in. No, investigate all of them and and then only we are able to try and investigate it well you know with with backup with evidence then then there's somebody we can trust then there is some some that this at least this institute or this party that we can trust uh, hopefully not just one party because every party could be blind um so then we need to have several that's um so you you mentioned oil palm um there are reports about oil palm in Malaysia but there are <laughs> very few like investigative pieces on oil palm in Malaysia. Mm. If you look at Indonesia, my gosh, like Tempo is Tempo is a it's a it's a very renowned investigative journalism outfit in Indonesia. You know, I I have a fellow, I have a colleague in the fellowship now, uh, who's with Tempo. The work they do, I was like, wow, it's crazy. The work they do, like so well done, mm. so brave, and they get so much support from the public. They I, I was asking him, like, are you not afraid that your government would really, like, harass and, and, and push you guys down? They do, I mean. But he said that the Indonesian public supports them so much that the government is, you know, is not going to take any hasty action. Yeah, the, I think you hit the, the nail on the, the right of the, the, the... I hit the nail. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, but the, the thing is that in Malaysia, there's so much of fear to stand out. Yeah, because there are weird things that happen in Malaysia. Yeah. Safety is an issue. Like I was talking to a friend of mine who is in uh, uh, refugee protection and uh, this person had started up a non-governmental organization was making some waves and this person, I mean, allegedly said, right, that uh, this person got attacked mm. for the work that this person was doing. 
right? Out of nowhere, this person like no, not physically attacked. Physically attacked. Oh. Not a robbery. Nothing. Yeah. Right. So much so that now this person only uses uh, Grab. Doesn't use yeah. own car because then they can track this person. Yeah. And that's the real fear. But unfortunately, if people like people of this bravery really this the we are not talking about in america where people say they are brave but actually they have so much of freedom of speech that they are very protected no really here this is what you would call brave where actually you're you're putting your safety in line mm-hmm. when it's so much so much easier for you to just lead a sedentary lifestyle mm-hmm. do your own thing do the sort of asian mentality just keep your head down and don't get into trouble right so these people who actually stand up and put their necks on the line it's really really admirable right yeah uh but also that's the reason why you don't see people speaking out because there is a cost or there is a risk a real risk right yeah well malaysia is not so dire right? if you think about myanmar for example mm. like you 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 really like or you can like you know bow and worship the people who are so brave there you know really putting their lives at stake for us here yeah such harassment such abuse uh happen you know makranga has received sort of like veil threats at times too wow. for our report but not to the point that I feel like really threatened physically not, physically, yeah, yeah. physically or emotionally I, I have not felt that yet hopefully right. I won't feel that um, but you're right so what can we do I mean I, I would say on social media um, I, I feel that there's a lot of support at least on social media um, for well, it goes both ways, right? They are like for support for for things that people feel, uh, support for the people who they feel they're doing the right thing. For example, your friend, um, you know, in, in human rights, um, you know, there would be an outpour of support for, for, for those people too. Um, I think for many of us, even if we lack the courage or we are not, we do not have the freedom to be as outspoken or to act as some of these um, brave people do, um, don't blame yourself. I, I wouldn't blame them. Yeah, uh, true. But there are things that you can do. You can give uh, support silently, quietly in the back, or at the very least you can do is to not propagate that that fear or that hatred mm. or that abuse. That's, that's the very least you could do. You can at least talk to maybe your close ones to, t- to try to change their mindset. Uh, and, and, and that's important. You can try to be more positive, you know, project a more positive vibe mm. uh, for your children, for your friends. Um, you can break, you can, you know, occasionally mention such uh, cases and try to, 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 to bring awareness to the topic. Um, you educate, educate yourself first and then you try to bring awareness to the topic. You don't have to be confrontational, but you can, you know, mention it on and off again. I think there are things that we can do now, everyone of us can do. Not asking you to, everyone has to go out there and be so brave and you know, put the necks on the line. Yeah. I was uh, reading your article in The, the Atlantic mm. uh, and I, I think you also That's have... That's the Hornbill one, right? The Atlantic uh, is the Hornbill one. Oh, sorry. Yeah, yeah, it's the Hornbill one. Uh, shoot, sorry, I'm getting mixed up. There's another one. Oh, I th- no, sorry. As, uh, South China Morning Post. Yeah, that was the uh, one on the deforestation, right? Yes, the one on South, the one published in South China Morning Post. Uh, it's yes, it's about the deforestation in Johor, Johor right. in the Jamalong and Tenggaro forest. That's the short. The SCMP one is a shorter version for the international audience. Uh, the longer version is on Makaranga. Yeah, right, right. And reading that, I was quite. Uh, I mean, we. 
I knew there was deforestation, mm-hmm. but then to read your article because I mean, like the one on Makaranga goes in depth. Yeah, uh, you know, like you, you even like look at uh, aerial views of the deforestation, right? Yeah. To see how uh, much has been gone, and you're yeah. talking about forest reservations, mm. right? Uh, and like looking at from I think you 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 started from like looking at 1990s onwards or something like that. Millions of acres have been have been deforested. Yeah, not 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 in Johor, yeah, but yeah. in Peninsula, Peninsula. Malaysia. Yeah. Yes, yeah, in Johor, it's the coastal forest that you you talk about, right? Yeah, in that specific story. Yes. Yeah, and I mean, how how bad is it exactly? Or because it's a complicated issue, right? You're looking at uh, a developing country where. Uh, resources need to be extracted so that the sort of the quality of life of people generally can go up, right? Uh, but at the same time, there's a cost to it. Uh, and we are losing things that we, it's not easy for us to get back. You know, not only trees, but like limestones, for example. At, at what expense are we willing to pay so that, you know, the people can uh, get a benefit? But there's a secondary question. Are the people even getting a benefit from this? Or is it just the top elites? Because like in your article, you talk a lot about how uh, a lot of the, I mean, the the players here are corporations and the royalty, right? Mm-hmm. So yeah, what are your thoughts? Well, um, I, I, I am of the, I'm of the thought that I think development uh, is of course necessary, um, but it has to be, you know, well managed, like I mean, that's a very cliche thing to say. But what what do we mean, what do we mean by well managed development? You know, if you, I think it 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 all comes to decision making. When I choose to cut down this forest, I say I'm the state government, right? The state government has the ultimate authority over land use in Peninsula Malaysia. I mean, in Malaysia, as a state government, nobody is above me when it comes to land use decision. So now I have this piece of forest reserve, say 1,000 hectares, you know, which is about 10 kilometers squared. Um, what's the best use of this? Somebody approaches me, a corporation, an individual, a powerful individual maybe, approaches me, tell me that they want this piece of land for their development, I don't know, housing estate. I, as a state government, I need to make a decision. Should I approve it or should I not? So what, what, what do I... What, what are my uh, criteria? What, what, what do I use to, to balance, uh, to, to, to weigh and, and, and to make my decision? That is critical. That is the thing that we all should be looking at. It's not say no development or it's not like all conservation. No, it, it's like, what, how do you make that decision? And the decision makers, when it comes to land use and forests, is the state exco is the state government. We don't have to look anywhere else. Mm. You can say there are all these other outside influences, lah. But in the end, who signs on it is the state exco. Because your your articles are very fair. Like you do also give the perspective of, and that's why I appreciate it because it's nuanced. Yeah. You give the perspective of the the timber businesses, yeah. and how when they are, they are, um, they are what was it permits yeah permits the logging right. permits logging yeah. permits are revoked then timber prices go up and they go out of business yeah. you're fair in that sense as well yeah uh, but I think look reading your articles it's quite evident that there is a lack of transparency because you've reached out to all these multiple agencies for comment but more often than not they don't respond yeah they don't respond for various reasons mm. uh, maybe they do not know the answer I yeah. mean we have 
maybe they don't know the answer. You know, like I, I if I ask the, uh, the 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 land office, why did you wh- why was this project approved? They don't have the answer. The the, the approval came from the Mantri Basar, and mm. you know how would they be savvy to what, what was the decision made? So they don't know. Uh, sometimes they are concerned and they they do not wish to answer for you know they want they you know it might you know bring bad consequences to them but yeah but when they do not answer it's it's not my fault you know i've done my job in trying to get them if any of them wants to talk to me i'm always willing to to listen because i want to know really like how are the decisions made i'm not no i'm not the type of journalist to judge people i i, I write it and i let my readers, the public, make their own decisions. As it should be as a journalist. Uh, as it should be. Some some journalists are a bit more activist type. Yeah. They are different types. Uh, but I I Makranga is not like that, yeah. So um and 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 so so yeah, so when when you're saying like how bad is deforestation? Um if the decisions are made badly without a long-term view, without you know, we, we all say Kaluaga Malaysia now. If it's not made for the sake of Kaluaga Malaysia, really, mm. I would say it's like a, a, a bad decision, right? Because it helps no, but it helps very few people. And some people would definitely benefit. But do those people really still need those benefits? You know, is it fair? We, we can definitely question that. The, the, when we say deforestation, uh, it's, it's different statistics, right? You will, you will not get one answer uh, when it comes to deforestation, if you just ask like how many how many forests were were cleared last year, hmm. very recent, right? You won't get one answer that everyone agrees on. Hmm. The satellite image will show a different answer, um, and then the forestry department will give you a different answer, even if they if they give you at all. The the state government might give you a different answer because the state government listens to the state forestry office, but they might also be listening to other agencies like the land office. Um, the environmental NGOs will tell you a different answer. The scientists will tell you a different answer. So who do you believe? Uh, they could all be correct because they are all looking at different things. Yeah. When we talk about so from satellite, let's go quickly on this. So from satellite, there would be it, it would be a technology that looks at forest cover. Mm. Right, it's like a program that they try to recognize what is forest and what is not. So it's like you know, you you, you now we have face recognition on our phone. True. It tries to recognize whether that's your face or not. Right, it's the same. They try to recognize what is forest and what is not, and so then they give you a number on how much forest is left. With the forestry department in peninsula in, in Malaysia, a forest is a forest if the land if the purpose of that land is classified as forest used. Mm-hmm. So it's a legal definition. It's a, it's like a legal term. Forest is like a legal term, yeah? Mm. Even if there's not a single tree on that piece of land, but the land is still classified for forest use, it's considered forest for them. Sure. Which is why, you know, what the satellite sees and what is recorded in the forestry registrar could be vastly different. Yeah, because the what the satellite, the satellite might be picking up uh, land with trees, for example, but that, not, that land might be privately owned and not classified as a yes. forest, right? yes. Right. Yes. Uh, but the odd thing for me is, I had this underst- well uh, thought. Maybe it was wrong, but I thought that if it was classified as a forest reserve, you know, mm-hmm. that it would be untouched. No. You know, no, I thought no. that it would be like last worst case scenario. If really necessary, then we go to the forest reserves. Yeah. I thought with the word reserve there. Well, you the know, full the full name is actually permanent forest reserve. Right. 
actually permanent reserve forest. Yeah. yeah. PRF. Permanent reserve forest. In Malay, it's hutan simpan kekal. So mm. you expect it's like kekal selama-lama niya. Tapi sebenarnya bukan. Because, yeah, it's not. It, it, this is where we, we need to read into the nuances of it. It's, it's, it's a forest reserve, but about... 60 to 70% of all the forest reserves in Peninsular Malaysia is um, categorized for production use, which means they can be logged, albeit it's sustainable logging or what we, or we, what we call selective logging. Yeah. So it's not like clearing. It's yeah. not that type. So you chop it off, you give it some time to grow back kind of thing. Lah. Yeah, and you don't chop off every tree. Yeah. You The foresters will go in and tag certain trees, mm. like there's tra- criteria and threshold, and then the loggers can only fell those trees and then you give it about 25 to 30 years time to you know reforest regrow and then 30 years later you come back and you hope that it will be good enough economic value enough to to, to log again mm-hmm. yeah but uh well that is the status quo i mean that is the standard lah. that's the standard of doing it uh, but there are ways in which a forest reserves can be cleared also there are a lot of exceptions, uh, I can tell you. <laughs> there are a lot of exceptions. And some in many cases, it just doesn't make sense. I mean, it doesn't make it doesn't follow SOP. Mm-hmm. It doesn't follow SOP. And you begin to question and wonder why. But nobody will really tell you why. But then you, you could quickly realize that in the end, it's the decision makers, the the the, the state government holds the ultimate authority. Mm-hmm. If they approve it, they approve it. Do you ever feel discouraged when you're doing this sort of like uh, reporting or investigations? Discouraged for... Meaning like, uh, this is shit. That, uh-huh. You know, the, the Malaysia is doomed. I no, should no, migrate to Australia. <laughs> wow, Australia is burning. <laughs> Yeah, so true. Australia is not like the, the, the best example to, to leave Malaysia That's for. That's true. But at the very least, they have a greater... Pre- I mean... No, they don't. They don't. They, they don't? don't? They you don't think don't. so? No, no. Their government does not seem to have it. Right. Their government, it's... Uh, yeah. If, if but you, their national yeah. identity is really tied in with environmentalism and, you know, kind of, right? But their government doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. They're, you know, much of their national income comes from natural resource extraction. Right, mining it's right. it's it's it, it's a lot it happens there a lot and um yeah if you if you ask australians like environmentalists in in australia i'm sure they will be very uh, condemning of their government's sure. uh, actions when it comes to environmental protection especially the current government so no i i don't get discouraged in 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 uh, in my reporting mm, i get i i feel i feel challenged <laughs> okay i feel challenged i feel that there's so much more that um, that I need to explain to the public and even the policymakers. You know, I realize policymakers actually understand very little yeah. about the legal framework of our natural resources. <laughs> it's it's policymakers in the sense you're talking about parliamentarians, MPs, yeah. uh, whether it's at the state level or yeah. at, and, the, at the federal level. And yeah. I would figure it's because that. Uh, the environment is not really a voting issue for Malaysians so I guess that's why MPs or or, or, or Aduns or whatever are not incentivized to find out more about the issue, issue maybe yeah maybe I mean in the end it's all down to the elections right yeah so which is why we as the voters if you care about the environment yeah. if you care oh my gosh that the piece of forest or that grassland you know or the drain behind my house or my neighborhood it just 
you know, it, it looks bad, it feels bad, it smells bad. I want something done about it. You need to tell whoever is going to be, you know, seeking your vote in, in the next election. Mm. And then maybe then they'll be prompt or they'll be triggered to actually look into it. Um, and so I feel challenged that there is, uh, there is all these nuances going on and I'm not in a position to judge who's right or who's wrong. But the least I could do is to let people understand the situation and there are good people doing it. For example, so often we blame forestry department mm. for like not managing the forest well. But Padahal is not even their decision to make. They are what we call, you know, the managers of the forest. Who, okay, they are just the managers of the forest, right? They are getting instructions from the top. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And so many of them would tell me off record that they are doing their best, you know, but there's, not, there's nothing they could do if a letter comes in, do A, B, C. Takan, they go and do D, E, F. Yeah, lose they their job. Right? <laughs> Uh, yeah, or they get, you know, cold storage or something. Right. Um, yeah. So we, we just need to understand this much better and then we can support the right people, support the right agencies to do the right thing. By right here, I mean like you as an individual, you support a cause that you identify with. I'm not going to tell you what is right or wrong. Maybe you do want the forest to be cleared and develop a condo there. No, that's fine. That's your decision. You want to live with a condo next to you, or you want to live in that condo in that area, that's fine. Then you push for it. But if you do not want that, you want the forest to be there, you want a, a river to run through there, then you push for that. But you must first know how to push for it and what to say or do in that push. Mm. I mean, as a citizen. Yeah. Mm. So uh, you were saying before the, uh, we started recording that this investigation, this uh uh, investigative journalism that you're doing about the deforestation as part of a, a fellowship that yeah, you're in, right? Yeah. It's uh, the Rainforest Investigations Network Fellowship, a mouthful. The RIN, <laughs> the RIN Fellowship by the Pulitzer Center. Yeah. Right. So when does that end? So that means you have a few more uh, pieces I have out, a right? A few more months uh, before this fellowship ends. It ends uh, in March. So, so you'll be, you'll be uh, producing more articles on this. Yeah. My main stories aren't out yet. Yeah. yeah. I'm excited for it because if this is not even your main story, I'm excited to read more of uh, what yeah, you come up with. I am excited to see them published. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and they'll be published on Makaranga. Yeah. Okay, great. So, okay, uh, talking about Makaranga, it's you and you have a, a collaborator, Wong Siulin, right? Yeah, my, Wong Yeah, uh, my partner, my business partner, Wong Siulin. Right. Yeah. Uh, she's also writing on it or? On this project? Yeah. No, she will be editing it. So, I see. so that's how we work. So there are actually just two of us uh, mainly in Makaranga. Uh, we have we are training new environmental journalists, but most of the stories are written, Any, uh, most of the work is written by us. Yeah. Anything behind the word Makaranga? Yeah, so Makaranga is the, the, the scientific name of a type of tree Right. that's very common in Malaysia. In fact, the, the, the leaves look a bit like a Bodhi leaf. I'm not sure if it's like a bit of heart-shaped leaf. Yeah, I've seen and a Bodhi. Yeah, tree. so Makaranga trees, all you need to know is, uh, oh, of course, you can Google it. Yeah. But if you just travel along the roads in, 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 in Malaysia, in, in KL or along the highways, right, you, you see Makaranga trees all over. They, they are what we call a pioneer species. Right. That means they, they would um, occupy, they would, they would set foot and, and, and claim uh, open land very fast. If there's a fire, then you, most likely you get makaranga trees growing there. And so they are, they have a weedy survival, strong survival nature. Mm. And so we kind of want our website, our portal to be like that too. That mm. we can, you know, be so 
surviving. It has such strong survival skills. What's know? what's the vision for Makaranga? The vision, well, we hope to nurture, we want to nurture uh, more environmental journalists. Mm. We don't want it just to be Sulin and me. So we want to nurture and provide a platform for more environmental journalists to, to write good, you know, in-depth analytical pieces about the Malaysian environment. We want Makaranga to be the go-to uh, resource for for anyone when if they want to learn about um, want to get a fair and balanced understanding about Malaysian environmental issues. Mm-hmm. Yeah, brilliant, man. Um, yeah, I've really enjoyed this conversation. Yeah, and if you know if anybody you know listening really like I guess identify with. What Makranga does. Yeah. Um, you have a it, campaign going on now, right? Yeah, I'm just going to pull into that. <laughs> uh, I must do my promo. <laughs> Go for it, man. So, yeah. So, Makranga takes a lot of effort and we are two years old now. And it has always just been uh, Sulin and, and, and me. And for much of uh, keeping Makranga running, we actually fork out our own money and then we put it in. I mean, we want grants and fellowship to, to produce some of the stories, but much of Makranga is really sustained out of our own pockets. So, but that, that's not sustainable. You know, we can't keep doing that. So for this month, the month of December, uh, we are running like a, a supporters campaign, mm-hmm. right? Where individuals can contribute financially uh, to support Makranga's operations for the whole of next year. So we are, there are four tiers. Um, you know, it goes from 50 ringgit to 1,000 ringgit. Mm. Uh, thanks to those who have uh, contributed you know, across all the tiers. And so, yeah, so if you are keen to learn more, just go to our website, www.makaranga.org. That's uh, M-A-C-A-R-A-N-G-A. Mm-hmm. And uh, check it out. Uh, can, where can people find you on social media and things like that? Yeah, so Makranga, it's uh, you know, on Twitter. It will be at Makranga tweets. Yeah. Uh, for mine, it will just be at Yaohua Lao. Right, and you also have your podcast Monsoon. Yeah. Uh, any plans for releasing any episodes? Are you on hiatus <laughs> for a little while? Or? If if I do not get um, yeah, well the the Rin Fellowship is open for a new application. Yeah. I, I I guess uh, I I should try for that. Mm-hmm. If I do get another round of like full term fellowship, then uh, I I wouldn't have time to do monsoon. Right. Then that will continue on its hiatus for another year. But otherwise, um, but then again, maybe I can get other science journalists in Malaysia to help me uh, to work on Monsoon together. Mm. Yeah, I think I've been thinking about that. We are trying to get a group of us together. Yeah. So maybe, maybe it'll come out, it'll break out of its uh, <laughs> hiatus soon. Yeah. That'd be great, that'd be great. Um, Normally we end with either recommendations or like a final thought or a final message. I think we did recommendations last episode. So maybe we can do like a final message. What's your message to, I don't know, could be to young people or to Malaysians or to the world or anybody, what is your final message, your final takeaway? Well, well, definitely to Malaysians, right? Um, I think support journalism. Um, be, you know, read widely uh, and find the, on, on, on any issue in Malaysia, um, take an interest, uh, educate yourself on it and don't just read one source, read multiple sources see how the issue is discussed and analyzed differently and presented differently. And then um, challenge yourself to form your own views and then talk to people about it. I think we, 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 we have so many 
issues and challenges in Malaysia that I think, you know, if, if everyone is able to discuss these issues, uh, you know, in, in a civil manner, uh, first among friends, I'm not asking you to go out and like grab a stranger and start talking like Roshan does. <laughs> um, but it's among friends and family. Like, try no, to don't get start it, up a podcast uh, with the guise of getting people to talk to you. You don't have to <laughs> go to that extent. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but yeah, just over, yeah, over dinner or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah talk more, read more, talk more. Yeah. Right. My final message to all the listeners of the Rumaroy podcast, please do support Makaranga. I think uh, this is a great, great uh, publication. It's a great cause. Uh, we are definitely going to be posting this on our social media we'll put the links there so if you want you can also find it there uh, but yeah that's it from me um, thank you so much again for coming on uh, I re- thanks for having I me I really on. appreciated this conversation and your time uh, for all those listening uh, you guys are awesome stay good stay stay good stay safe and stay healthy yeah take care <laughs> bye everybody <laughs>